Morning, everybody. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Hey, so if you're visiting with us today, I'm so grateful that you're here. If you've even been kind of floundering or struggling in your relationship with God, I'm so grateful that you've chosen to join us both here in the room and, you know, online. And uh, most of us in the room or the room that we're sitting in have found ourselves in a season, and this can be awkward, where we're looking for a new church home. You know, maybe you've relocated to a new community, or maybe you went through a divorce and you lost the custody battle of the church that you used to attend together. Maybe there was a season where you just quit going to church and you recognize the need, you know, to re-engage. Maybe you've been through something so traumatic that you just recognize anew how badly you need a family around you, you know, the family of God. Whatever the reason... You know, we all know finding a new church can be awkward. Uh, and usually, when, uh, so the last question, to me, do I, you know, like the music? Will they minister to my children? Is the teaching inspiring me? You know, what's here for my teenagers? Are my needs being met? And so sometimes, because people ask those kinds of questions so frequently, that's where churches will go. And, you know, they'll work super hard to cater to all of those things. And when that happens, uh, both the people in that church and the church itself, they just lose. Uh, and I, so I want to show you kind of a parody of what happens, how wrong it can be when churches get all caught up in trying to please everybody. So check out your screen. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I don't know who sets the worship center temperature, but why does it have to be so cold? Why do you have to be so right? Heated chairs are now being installed. This one wants a small church, but I'm afraid if it's too small, they're gonna make me volunteer like crazy. And I don't stack chairs, do I? Makes total sense. Join now and we'll let you decide the size of our church. We're millennials and we want a church that- Say no more. Any requests you have will be granted immediately. Parking is horrible. It takes me almost six minutes to get from my car to the building. Ugh. It's going to take me six seconds to tell you a valet service is on the way. My pastor's preaching, it's all over the map. I say, oh, I don't know, stick with the books of the Bible. We should be only on chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll even start pronouncing that word the way you said it to go to 15 should be willing to go to 10. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain but from now on five minute sermons it is. <laughs> now you're talking. Me Church where it's all about you. Some of you are probably actually like wow heated seats actually sounds pretty cool can we make that happen. Uh, anyway um, yeah this is just so wrong right? And uh, while all the questions that people tend to ask about a church as they're looking for a church are certainly understandable, all those questions kind of beg uh, a, a bigger question. And that is, what kind of questions should I be asking when I'm uh, looking to plug into a church or engage in a church or, you know, find a new church home? 
And while all those questions that we tend to ask are certainly understandable, what is so shocking is that when Jesus asks questions of a church, his list of questions looks entirely different than the kinds of questions that we ask when we're looking for a church. And that begs the question, whose list should be more important? So, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7, almost to the very end of the chapter, he talks about life. Uh, the author talks about life in the local church. And so I'm going to take some of the commands that he's giving throughout these chapters, and I'm going to turn them each into a question. And we're going to kind of figure out together, okay, what kinds of questions should we be asking about a local church? So here's what he says first. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if we were going to put this in the form of a question, here's the way we would say it. We would say, look, are the leaders of the church, are their lives worthy of imitation? Now, often when we think about church leaders, the first thing we think about is their gifting or their competency. In other words, are they gifted teachers or preachers? Are they gifted at, you know, leading worship? But I need you to hear me say that character, the character of a leader, should always trump gifting. And yet it's gifting that the church in America pays the most attention to. But here's the reality. You can't imitate someone else's gifting. He says here, imitate your leaders. So he's not saying imitate their gifting. He's saying, look, imitate their lifestyle. They should have a lifestyle that's worthy of imitation that we should all strive for. And I want to submit to you that the standard for that it's found in another book, the book of Galatians, and it's in something called the fruit of the Spirit. So here's what that verse says, Galatians 5.20. The Spirit of God as people chase the Spirit of, of Mike or the fruit of Brandon. See, our flesh isn't easily satisfied, none of us. So these are things that the Holy Spirit uh, boils up or brings up in our lives as we chase after Jesus. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. So when you're looking for a church home, the first thing you should ask is, are the leaders loving? Uh, are they joyful? I mean, do, do they seem like they're passionate about what they're doing and talking about? Are they peaceful? Is there peace in their homes? You know, are they patient? This is so important because where lots of people gather and there is no patience, you know, right? This is a huge problem. Are they patient when people mess up or uh, screw up or make poor or bad decisions? Are they kind? In other words, if kindness is love in action, not just is their countenance loving, but are they kind? And then are they good? Do they have character? If they say they're going to do something, do they do it? Are they faithful? Are they gentle? Do they have self-control? And then he goes on to say, against such things as these, there is no law. In other words, what he's saying is, look, you know, who wouldn't want any of these qualities? And all of these qualities come through chasing Jesus. Now, while the lives of the leaders of a local church should be worthy of imitation, I need to I need to say this, please do not expect the leaders of this church or any church, 
while their life should be worthy of imitation, they, they should never be expected to be perfect. They should never, ever be expected to have, have it all together. No leader, no matter how successful or prominent, is free from the need to be nurtured and challenged in community. Every person, every leader, every pastor is a work in progress. No matter how long you've been in ministry leadership, no matter how well-trained you are, no matter how theologically mature, no matter how gifted, no matter... Um, uh, We're all in need of spiritual growth and development. We all have blind spots. We all have unique susceptibility to temptation. Each of us has character weaknesses. We are all in need, and we will always be in need of the rescuing, convicting, and transforming power of the gospel. Further, Pastors and church leaders are doing ministry on the front lines of spiritual warfare with an enemy that works overtime to discredit and to discourage. So here's my point. Please don't assume that the pastors or leaders of any church won't struggle with sin in exactly the same way that you do. Listen, when you do that, you do yourself a disservice and you do a disservice to the pastors who have been placed over you. It is a disservice to them because when they sin or make an unwise decision or, a, a, you know, make a, you know, just fall into something, get naughty or whatever, you will, be, you will be shocked, you will be surprised, and you will be the first one to try to string them up and run them out of town. Secondly, it is a disservice, and this is the more important piece, it is a disservice to yourself. And here's why. Because when I teach or one of our teaching pastors teach, or one of our pastors, you know, be it Mike or Brandon or somebody else, leads worship, you won't think that the teaching applies to you. You will say things like this. You'll say, well, my pastors don't live in the real world. They don't have the struggles and complexities that I have to deal with. I mean, sure, in an ideal world, I would be able to apply that scripture to my life. But hey, I work in business, and business is cutthroat. So I can't really apply that to my life in the same way that my pastors can apply this to their life. So you will never get around to adequately living out your faith in Jesus because deep down you, you believe that your pastors don't have the same struggles that you do. And so you, don't, you get a pass. You don't have to uh, apply that to your life. Now listen, to be clear, nobody is perfect. No pastor, no leader, no minister only our Savior is perfect, and only He should be expected to continue to be perfect. Uh, 
One of the things I loved, um, especially in the early years of being here, as my kids were growing up here at SCC, is I was so grateful that my kids, because they were pastor's kids, were never expected to be perfect. And if once in a while somebody would rise up and try to make that happen, my wife, who can be a mama bear, she would rise up and she would say, no, don't hold my children to a different standard that you, than, than you hold your own children to. Our our children should be held to no higher standard. And by and large, our church was an amazing church for our children to grow up in. And as a result, all three of my kids still love the local church. And that's so important to me. So the first question we should ask in a church is, are the lives of the leaders worthy of imitation? Are they perfect? No, that should never be expected. But yesterday and starts to be strengthened by grace. So the second question is this. Is the primary message of the church the grace of Jesus? The gospel, the good news that he did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Now here's the thing with grace. Grace comes free of charge to people who... Who don't, deserve, who don't deserve it, who least deserve it. And you need to know that I'm one of those people, and so are you. Grace is so amazing in that it keeps us from becoming self-righteous and judgmental. Because when we all approach the God just as much as you do, or the next person. And here's another reality about grace. Friends, we live in a graceless world. And if you doubt that, spend five minutes on social media. And so the church has to offer what you cannot find anywhere else. In fact, I would argue that if the church doesn't offer consistently and regularly the grace of Jesus, it has nothing to offer except a religious experience or moralizing. And that doesn't serve anyone else well. Um, so he says, look, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. You know, in other words, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's saying, look, Jesus doesn't change. The worship of Jesus should never change. Fads change. But uh, Jesus never does. You ever noticed how certain churches take on different flavors? So let me give you some examples. So in some churches... Um, you know, it's all about the spiritual gifts. In other churches, it's all about how God wants to bless and prosper you. At other churches, it's all about maintaining a standard of holiness or keeping the rules. And then some churches get really stoked, and this used to be me early in my ministry, about action steps. So, hey, here's five ways to fix your marriage, and three ways to be a good friend, and four ways to get along with annoying people. For some churches, it's a particular slant on a brand of theology. For others, it might be all about relevant and passionate worship. In some churches, Sadly, it might even become about a social justice or racial reconciliation. And I want to be clear, I believe all of those things are and forever. And so it's not some new agenda about what you, but the timeless message of what he has done for us. See, spiritual gifts 
family helps, racial reconciliation, all of these things flow out of the good news of Jesus, out of the grace of Jesus. They they are not the gospel. The gospel did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by saving us. And, And he lived the life we were supposed to live, we couldn't live, and that we wouldn't live. I mean, so listen, if there's one thing that I would pray for Shelbyville Community Church, it would be that we would always be true about our message and our ministry, that it is all about the grace of our Lord Jesus, who he is and what he's done in our lives, and that we would be, that we would chase him as passionately as he has chased us. And I want to remind you, the way he chased you, he had to chase you through a cross, And so we need to be equally as passionate in our response back to him. So he's just saying this, look, evaluate any church by one thing, the centrality of the gospel, the grace of Jesus. Now I want to take a minute and just speak to some of you who may be visiting today. Maybe you've been around a little while, but you've never gotten around to taking hold of the grace of God. Maybe you're interested in God. Maybe you're even open to spiritual things, but you've never really opened your heart to God's grace. And so, you know, when maybe you always thought of God as this angry being or this angry person that you could never please, or maybe as this judgmental entity uh, that has expected you to perform uh, to earn his love. Listen, Grace is the answer to all of that. Grace says, no, God doesn't expect you to perform to earn his love. Grace says God's already demonstrated his love for you by sending his son Jesus to die in your place. And here's the deal. This is why this grace is so important. Because if I, if, if I say, hey, the rule around here is, you know, we help little old ladies across the street, right? And so if that's our rule, if that's what our church is built on, and somebody helps 999 little old ladies cross the street, how do you know it doesn't have to be 1,000? How do you know that helping 1,200 little old ladies across the street is what God needs to be pleased with you? See, you can never know if you've performed at a high enough level or if you've ever done enough. And grace, friends, frees us from running on that treadmill. This is why grace has to be at the very center um, of of any church's agenda because grace tells us that no matter how big our thorns are God's grace is sufficient that no matter how painful almost 28 years ago Shelbyville punked up thorn-prone dysfunctional grace-needing mistake-making people in our community and I think if we all look around this morning I think we've done a pretty darn good job don't you that's our mission That's what we're here to do. We've got to be. Now, let me tell you this. If we're going to be a grace community, it is so important that every one of us in the room own our thorns. When people own their thorns, when they recognize their own need for grace, 
it keeps them from growing judgmental or prideful or arrogant or hypocritical. Therefore, they think they're living closer to God and that their lives are more pleasing to God by their behavior. And friends, when people tend to focus on their behavior, they start to wander away from the gospel. The grace of Jesus needs to be front and center. And the way for that to happen is we have to, be, we have to create a culture. We have to be a community where we own our thorns. And we know that God's grace is sufficient for our thorns. So two questions so far. Are the leaders' lives worthy of imitation? Is the church's message centered on the grace of Jesus? And then here's how the author says this next one. He says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Again, our altar is Jesus. And he's saying, look, we have him as an altar. And then he goes on to say this, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. So he talks about embracing the suffering of Jesus and bearing the disgrace that Jesus bore outside the camp. So here's how I would frame this as a question. Is the church willing to identify with the suffering of Jesus? Bearing the disgrace he bore. Listen, when a church, when a group of people bear up under suffering, it produces something called grit. Now, grit is passion combined with perseverance uh, over the long haul. So it's the ability to stick with something even when it gets difficult. That's what grit is. And this is exactly what suffering produces. Now, anytime I talk about suffering, one of the things that we need to do is we need to distinguish between two kinds of suffering. This is so important because you behave completely differently in these two paradigms of suffering. So I want to show you the first kind of suffering. This is what I would call hamster wheel suffering. So you kind of keep your eyes up there, and in a few minutes, as these hamsters stay on this wheel, you're going to begin to see them suffer. You're going to begin to see them uh, go through some pain, some difficulty. There it is, right there. One misstep, right? And that hamster really starts to suffer. Hamster wheel suffering. Now, what, what does the hamster need to do if he wants to quit suffering? He has to get off the wheel. So when you're engaged in hamster wheel suffering, you're engaged in suffering because of your own decision making. So if, you're, if it's hamster wheel suffering, you get off the wheel. How do you get off the wheel? Well, you change your mind. You repent. You say, hey, that was a terrible decision. I made a bad decision. Jesus, give me the wisdom to make a better decision. And as I follow you more closely, 
you know, I'll make the right choice. I'll make a better decision next time, one that won't cause me to suffer. And, and this is so important because so many people, they're in, the, they're in the middle of hamster wheel suffering because of their own decisions, but they want to shake an angry fist at God and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? To which God would reply, I haven't done anything. You're just reaping, you're just sowing what you're reaping. You're just reaping the consequences of the bad decisions that you've been making. So sometimes we suffer and we would, from our own decision making, we call that hamster wheel suffering. The second kind of suffering, you behave entirely differently. This I would call pottery wheel suffering. Now, if the pot wants to be shaped and molded, or if that lump of clay wants to be shaped and molded into a pot, does it need to stay on the wheel or does it need to get off the wheel? And all that, listen, so what I'm saying is this, churches have to be so stoked, so excited about being transformed, molded and shaped into the image of Jesus that they say, no matter what God blows into my life, I will remain under that because I know by remaining firm and persevering, I will get grit and I will look more and more like Jesus. I am more excited about being shaped and molded into the identity and character of Jesus. I'm so excited about that, I will endure anything to get that. I will go through any difficult set of circumstances to get that. You know, when I was really young, there was a children's book that my mom would sometimes read to me, and it was called The Little Engine That Could. Anybody remember this story? It was about a small blue train engine who, with great difficulty, great perseverance, made its way up a mountain to bring toys to children on the other side. And some of you probably remember the classic line from that story. You remember what it was? What was it? Yeah. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And after enough difficulty, after enough persevering, after enough sticking with it, after enough grit, this small blue train engine transitions and he no longer says, I think I can. What does he say? I know I can, I know I can, I know I can. How did he know? Because he'd gone through suffering. He'd stretched himself. He did the hard thing. Listen, Christ followers should be willing to do at least one hard thing every single day. Every single day. Because doing hard things produces people with grit. And let me tell you something, churches that are filled with grit, they're unstoppable. They're like unflappable. They won't quit. They won't stop. Even in a pandemic, they will keep moving forward. They will just keep moving. So is the church willing to identify with the suffering of Jesus? And then there's he doesn't say it directly, but it's an implication of the verse. He starts to talk about how Jesus suffered outside the city gate and that he went outside the camp. 
And I think the implication of going outside the camp means that churches need to be willing to go outside the camp, in other words, outside the doors of the church to win people that are lost, to save people that are lost and that are far from God. Listen, friends, Jesus said he had one mission, to seek and save the lost, to bring near to God those who are far from God. In fact, so we're told that Jesus went outside his camp. Friends, the church, his church has to do the same thing. His mission has to be the church's mission. Let me just tell you, I wouldn't want to be part of a church that isn't concerned about winning the lost, and neither should you. Listen, Jesus left power and Jesus left privilege to save you and to save me. Where would you and where would I be if Jesus had chased the American dream? Aren't you glad he didn't? So some of you know my story. You've heard a little bit of it. I'll just give you a 30-second deal. So when I was, when I was in middle school, uh, going into middle school, my mother uh, died of an illness a few years later, my dad remarried. We did the Brady Bunch thing. There were, you know, we doubled the kids in the house. Two years later, my dad divorced. And so we, you know, separated then. And we were in a home, just my dad and, and my brother and my sister. And I had a best friend. His name was Scott Smith. And his parents recognized that I was floundering. Famous. Like that I didn't have any supervision because from being a junior in high school on, I could go where I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. And I can see some juniors in the room like, oh, that would be pretty awesome. Listen, no, it isn't. It isn't awesome. And I'll tell you why. Because I have self-inflicted wounds from my junior and senior year that I wouldn't have had to carry around for so long if I'd have had a parent that was actively engaged with me and speaking into my life. So see, this family took me in, and for the very, very first time in my life, I saw what the love of Jesus, because they were all followers of Jesus and very committed to that, and this family took a risk to bring me into their home because there was a season where I was having a bigger influence on their son than he was having on me. See, I was, I was clay that needed to be molded. And this family stepped in and took a risk and they stepped up and they loved me when there weren't very many people in my life loving me very well, especially loving me with the love of Jesus. Now let me tell you something. Look at me, listen to me. All across our community, there are young men and young women in single-parent homes and those parents are struggling to raise those kids. And some of those parents are having to work not just one job, but two jobs. And maybe 12-hour-a-day jobs where they can't be home when their kids come home from school. And so do you know what? This church has to step up. This church has to begin to love these young men and women, any one of whom could have been me could have been me, apart from the grace 
of Jesus. It's so important that churches are willing to go outside the camp to save and win the lost. This is why we say, look, we are meant to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community. This is why we must do that. Because there was a day in my life where someone else did that for me. And we have young men and women in this community who need someone else, i.e. us, all of us. You may say, well, it's too big of a job. Yeah, it is too big of a job for you, but it's not too big of a job for us. It's not too big of a job for all of us working together, moving as one, serving as one, being generous as one. Oh, what a dent we could make in our community together. But we have to be a church that goes outside the camp to win the lost. And then finally, one more uh, question. Here's the way the author says it. He says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So here's the question that I would pose out of that statement. Do, do the worship and the lifestyle of the church members magnify Jesus? Let me say it again. Does the worship and the lifestyles of the church's members daily magnify Jesus? Now, when it comes to the behavior of people, our behavior does one of two things. It either magnifies Jesus or it repels people from Jesus. And the reason that there are so many of us in the room who have so much church hurt is because we've known someone in a local church who, who behaved in a way that repelled people from Jesus. Didn't magnify Jesus. On the contrary, it repelled them. Now, it would be fair if some of you said, wait a minute, Pastor, as I look at that verse... Through Jesus, therefore, let's continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. I don't see anything in there about behavior. I don't see anything in there about lifestyle. And that's fair enough. But I, I believe it's meant to be there, and here's why. Because of another book, the book of Romans, chapter 12, and I want you to look how similar the language is. God's grace, God's goodness. The author in the book of Romans has spent 12 chapters spelling out the mercy of God. And this is a hinge verse. So he's going to say, look, in light of all that God has done, in light of who God is, in light of his mercy, his goodness, his grace, here's how you should behave. And he goes on to say this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. In other words, be different. Be willing to be shaped and molded by Jesus. Think in such a way that as you're actively being shaped and molded by Jesus, you're grateful for that. So why do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Because of his mercy. Uh, and notice that this is a lifestyle of worship 
that, that uh, talks about the way that we use our bodies every single day. We, 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 put our, we make our bodies a living sacrifice for God, and we use them in a way that pleases God, and we use them in a way that, uh, that resonates with the character of God, that, that's holy. So see, lifestyle is our worship. Listen, some of us are under the conviction that worship happens when we come in a church and we sing three or four songs together, and so worship has a beginning and an end. And I want to counter that the, the deepest, truest worship of your life happens in your day-to-day relationship with God. Worship should be a continual, it should be the continual aroma of your life. The way that you live your life is an act of worship to God. So we should offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. So let me just ask you one of two questions. Does your life daily magnify Jesus in your behavior, in your words, with your actions? Or does your behavior, do your words, do your actions repel people from Jesus? So Hank was a cranky guy. He was fluent in the language of complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner might carry a ball and a chain. And although he went to church his whole life, Hank never changed. There was a season where Hank's primary complaint centered on the music of the church. In another season, he might complain about one of the pastors, one of the many pastors with whom he'd had a disagreement. Hank never smiled, though he would have told you that he was happy. It's just that his happiness never got around to showing up in his face. Hank was almost constantly angry with someone. He had a temper And often those in his family and church family would be on the receiving end of this. So as a result, his children were distant. He never complimented them or told them that he loved them. His marriage had cooled decades ago. His wife confessed that she knew she could never please Hank and that they'd really never, ever been affectionate with one another. Whatever capacity Hank had, might have had for joy or wonder or gratitude, had atrophied. So he critiqued and he complained and he judged and his soul got a little smaller year after year after year after year. Somehow, surprisingly, Hank had become a deacon in the church. And because of this, no one had the courage or the fortitude to confront Hank or to tell Hank the truth about himself, that he was actually a Jesus repellent and not a Jesus magnifier. So, Hank excelled at repelling people from Jesus his entire life. All because the community around him refused to be honest with him, to, you know, to speak the truth in love, to, to, to be the truth wrapped up in grace. They just refused to do that. This is why we talk about it being so important to build a culture of discipleship. 
where we're willing to speak the truth, all wrapped up in grace to one another, to confront when people are being Jesus repellents instead of Jesus magnifiers. See, uh, again, what I'm saying is this. We want to be a community of brothers and sisters that are regularly pointing one another to Jesus, not just holding services, not just asking you to serve, not just worshiping, but who also are intentionally investing in one another in relationships. So important because God has called at Shelbyville Community Church to be a disciple-making church that's meant to bring hope and healing to our community. In other words, we have to be willing to be the church that's willing to go outside the camp to win the lost. So what about you? What about your life? I want to be the man. I know you want to be the man. That would be Jesus' magnifiers. So what needs to change? What needs to change in your vocabulary? What attitude needs to change? Is there some anger that you need to deal with? Is there some forgiveness that you need to engage in? If that's what needs to happen, do that. Your life is meant to magnify Jesus. But you can go the other way. And God forbid that any of us do that. So let me pray for you and for me and for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just pray for every man and woman in the room. God, deep down we yearn. We yearn to be Jesus' magnifiers. To be a pleasant aroma to other people. God, would you shape us and mold us that we would be just that? God, if there's any of us in the room and, and our behavior or our words or our lifestyle has been a Jesus repellent for others, God, would you convict us? Would you speak by your Spirit deeply into our hearts? Would you convict us of where and how we need to change? And God, would you supernaturally push the button, help us know what buttons to push and what levers to pull, what practices and habits to engage in, to change, to learn to forgive, to be men and women that traffic in grace, Lord Jesus, in exactly the same way that you have trafficked in grace with us. Make us gracious. Make us gracious, not self-righteous. Keep us humble. Don't let us grow prideful and arrogant. God, your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. That it's your mercy that motivates us to sacrifice. So we give you thanks this morning, Lord Jesus, not only for what you've done in our presence, but for who you are. And we give you thanks and we give you praise and we do all of that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, listen, would you be the men and the women this week that just traffic in grace? You know, one of, one of the things I'm going to continue to pray for all of us is that there would be a moment for every one of us where the Holy Spirit would make us aware 
that in that moment that we are magnifying Jesus. And that in that moment, you would just kind of hear the Holy Spirit pat you on the back and say, that a boy, daddy's so proud of you. You are doing the very thing you were put on planet earth to do. So go and let's all commit to being Jesus magnifiers. God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us today.